Welcome to Redressing Histories, a podcast. This series seeks to foreground the work of African diaspora researchers whose work and histories are currently underrepresented and overlooked within publications, academia, museums and the media. This podcast has been sponsored by the University of Brighton Centre for Design History and the University's Equality and Inclusion Fund. My name is Ellie Michaela Young, and today I will be speaking to Talika Kirkland about her experiences as an African diaspora researcher, fashion and textile, underrepresented histories, and the challenges of archival research for African diaspora researchers. Talika is a fashion historian, lecturer in cultural and historical studies at London College of Fashion, a PhD candidate at Goldsmiths University, and the founder and creative director of the Costume Institute of the African Diaspora, CAYAD, an organisation dedicated to researching the history and cultures of dress and adornment for the African diaspora. As an academic, she has travelled extensively, establishing links with researchers, custodians and practitioners across the globe. She has created projects and publications which include Cultural Dress and Costume History of the African Diaspora, Tartan, Its Journey Through the African Diaspora, Kayad's inaugural international dress conference entitled Siwia, Sartorial Representations of the African Diaspora, and To Just Be in Still Breathing, A Hundred Black Voices on Racism. I wanted to start out by finding out a little bit more about your research and practice. So my research primarily has been about trying to collect information about dress, adornment, construction of clothing from the African diaspora, specifically the communities that have arisen outside of the African continent. So diasporas that have arisen from Um, the period of enslavement or um, voluntary migrations, whether it's uh, through work or education, but communities that have African-centered communities or African communities like African-Americans or in the Caribbean or in um, Central and South America. And so, and in Europe as, as well, of course. So it's really trying to understand how people have found themselves in these positions, found themselves in these places, and then taken their understanding of themselves to develop their own dress practices. That's primarily what my research has been about. My PhD research has honed into the idea of respectability, specifically how black people, black women actually, Mm. have used the idea of respectability and the the idea of respectability through clothing to try and suggest they are better than the perception of their skin colour. Okay. I won't suddenly join the debates and start talking about recent (laughs) conversations about black women and respectability in the US. Oh, you know what? It's so interesting. It's uh, And what I find, sorry, you're getting me off on a tangent now, but I've just got to (laughs) say, what I find so fascinating about the the conversation about respectability and the way black women dress, always Mm. black women. It's always Mm -hmm. black women, Mm -hmm. number one. Mm -hmm. There's always a policing of how black women are supposed to look, Mm -hmm. right? We've already been told for centuries that we are no good, we are base, we are, um, you know, we've, we, we're just the worst of the worst. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's always a way 
of suggesting how we might be better. Yeah, Bleach our yeah. skin, straighten our hair, do this, mm. do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't yeah. walk here, don't look like this. And, and it's always this policing of how black women are supposed to look instead of just allowing us to be. Mm. And it comes from and inside the community and outside the community as well. So exactly. we don't win either way. No, there's no, there's no winning. There's no winning. And, and my, my research is really looking at how the policing has come from inside the community and how okay. we've been policing ourselves mm. on, you know, how we are supposed to look and then for how other, how we expect other black women within the community to look. Yeah, that makes, that makes, it's very timely, that research, and it makes perfect yeah. sense. I can't wait to get, for you to get it finished so I can start reading it. <laughs> so, what first got you interested in fashion and textiles? Why fashion and textiles specifically? From I was really little, all of my mothers, mum, mm-hmm. gran, great-gran, etc., made clothes. Each one made okay. clothes for the next one, right? Mm-hmm. Or aunts made clothes for the next one. And so sewing and fabric and scissors and pins and all this paraphernalia around Mm. construction of clothing was just in my life from I was really small Mm -hmm. and so it was just one of those things where you know I was always trying something on and getting stabbed with pins (laughs) (laughs) because because it became like one a a part of my everyday life it just Mm -hmm. sort of was one of these things that I kind of had in my mind, like, oh, okay. you know, yeah, we make clothes, we 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 wear clothes, we do this with clothes. And mm. and so it became into my consciousness this understanding of dress and clothing. And then from that, I then developed a, a more pressing understanding, I think, a, a sort of a more in-depth understanding of how actually clothing attributes to how people feel about themselves. I had never really understood it as that, you know, I'd understood Mm, that you mm, wear a nice mm. thing to church or you make sure you're doing this. If you go into an event or, you know, you don't go to the corner shop with, with your head looking a certain way, Mm -hmm. all of this, but I hadn't really attributed it to how it was about how we feel about ourselves and what that actually means. And so once I started reading more and and talking more about it, I, I suddenly started to understand that actually, especially for black people in the Western world Mm -hmm. who have been, you know, subjugated for so long, that understanding of ourselves and just trying to be, just be, really has been underpinned by how we're expected to look and how we are and and the resources we're we're being given, Mm, you know, in order to be able to look. So, you know, that's kind of where the, the interest came from. So, you know, in the series that we're talking about, the difficulties of African diaspora researchers when they're looking into these types of histories. Yeah. So I I wanted to ask you, what difficulties have you faced when undertaking your PhD research? Do you want to talk about your PhD research or your previous research? One, One of the first difficulties has been not having enough people who have written about it already. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, there are there are a few things that are written here and there. Kamal Braithwaite, um, Carol Tullock, um, you know, uh, Steve Buckridge, Nolly Rookway, all of these people. Mm -hmm. Right. That have written bits of things. But in terms of the plethora of resources that we have for European understandings of research, there is absolutely Mm -hmm. nowhere near. 
in yeah. terms of the African diaspora. And there is certainly not enough discussion on the different nuances of understanding of the self within the African diaspora and how that relates to dress. So it really has been a lot of laying the ground as I walk yes, and, and yeah. having to relate to research that doesn't relate to what I'm looking at, mm -hmm. doesn't relate to the black community, doesn't relate to an African diaspora context, doesn't even relate to Africanism yeah. at all or blackness at all. And yep. so it really has meant picking up little bits of information from somewhere else and then trying mm. to surmise how that might relate to mm. an African context or a black context or an, or a, yeah. an African diaspora context, mm. you know? So it, it really has been, you know, laying the train track as the train rolls, mm. you mm. know? And it's been so difficult that when I've gone to places and asked questions, like when I've gone to the Caribbean, I do a lot of research mm. in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. When I've gone to the Caribbean or even when I've gone to Africa and I've asked people about, clothing and dress and how they feel mm. the the reactions I get has been why would anyone want to know that why would anyone care who oh who God. wants to who is interested in this yeah. why are you asking these questions you know so there's there's the other challenge has been a pushback you know there's mm -hmm. there has been a pushback from the communities that you're asking these questions from because essentially they also don't see the value in the information mm. that you're mm. asking about it's never been seen as valuable, is it? So all of a sudden, exactly. if, if historically exactly. these these so-called white institutions with white researchers haven't seen that information as valuable, why suddenly do these young black researchers want to know about something that's never been historically exactly. valuable? Exactly. Exactly. I've got to give you an anecdote that relates perfectly to this. Mm -hmm. I was doing, on one of my travels around the Caribbean, I found myself in Turks and Caicos, the largest island in Turks and Caicos is called Providencialis, I think. And I had already contacted the Minister of Culture. When I go to the Caribbean, I try and get hold of the Office of the Ministers of Culture and mm -hmm. talk to them about what I'm doing and, you know, sort of inform them that I'm coming to the island and whatever. And I'd managed to get hold of the Director of Culture from the Ministry of Culture in Turks and mm -hmm. Caicos. And his name was David James, really nice guy. And I said to him, I'm coming. Um, I want to do this research. Are you free to meet with me or could you suggest somebody that I meet? And we'd, we'd been speaking for about three months on mm -hmm. through email. And he was like, yes, that's fine. Absolutely no problem whatsoever. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I'll meet you at this cafe, you know, down the road in on mm -hmm. the, the, the islands are tiny. Right. Yeah, so yeah, it's literally yeah. like one cafe, one place. So mm -hmm. I'll meet you at this place, blah, blah, blah. So I said, OK. So I got to the island and, you know, I, I stayed in my little apartment that I had and everything was lovely, beautiful, white sand, turquoise sea, everything's gorgeous. <laughs> and so I go to this cafe to meet this person and there's there's hardly anyone in the cafe. There's me and the two people who are working behind the counter. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm waiting, you know, and, and everything's lovely, you know, lizards are running around and doing whatever. And there's a man that walks in and he sort of looks like the picture that I've seen, but a little mm. bit different, you know, grayer, really long mm -hmm. locks and the picture doesn't have locks and doesn't have a beard. So I'm like, oh, I don't know if that's him. So he walked in, looked around, walked out, stood outside. And I thought, oh, maybe that's not him. Anyway, about two minutes later, he walked in, looked around, walked outside again. Third time, walked in, looked around, came over to me and he said, are you Miss Kirkland? And I said, yes, yes, I'm Miss Kirkland. Are you, are you Mr. James? How are you? Da, da, da. And he said, I'm so sorry. I didn't realise it was you. I presumed you'd be a white woman. <gasps> <laughs> this is a black 
man, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is a black man. And he said, I presumed you'd be a white woman, even though my name is Talika. How many white people do you know called yeah. Talika? But anyway, yeah. whatever. Um, he said, I presumed you'd be a white woman because the research that you're talking about, I don't know that black people do this type of research. It's usually white people that do this type of research. Mm-hmm. So I just presumed you'd be a white person. And I was like, wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, that just says it all, does it not? Yeah. Yeah, so it actually, really if is. anything, we need more young black people to go out and do the work, you know, yeah, exactly. so that people exactly. start getting used to seeing us doing this work. Yeah, no, completely agree with you. Because I, I, I've had conversations with you before and others about the fact that when we're trying to do things and we're looking out for reach. Af- um, African diaspora researchers who this do this type of stuff. There's only a few of us, so we're always yeah. going back to the same people to ask to do yeah. the same things. And it's like there needs to be more people. There yeah, really there does. does. There really, really does. There are a lot of Jamaican cultural researchers and social historians, yes. and they will touch on dress. And, and it's not in depth, but they give you something to cling on to. So you sure. can at least think about it that way. But for me, it's been the archival material in the institutions, what's there and what isn't there. Because for mm-hmm. Jamaican his- design history more generally, National Library of Jamaica, there's so many clues that there were these designers in Jamaica doing these things, but there's nothing in an archive. But no one's written about them and no one's archived that material. No. Yeah, no. And yeah, so, it's, it's so really, much of it's lost. It's really sad, actually, because I, I remember reading about the mass amount of seamstresses and tailors in Jamaica mm-hmm. at the turn of the 19th into 20th century. Yeah. Something like 18,000, 18,500 18, mm-hmm. seamstresses and tailors and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and again what I read was like one tiny little paragraph in Mm -hmm. a book about something else. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm like, okay, but who is writing about those 18 and a half thousand people? Like where is the archived research on them? Who were they? How did they start? Where did they get their knowledge from? All of that. Like, you know, it's frustrating. It's really, really frustrating. But the frustration just kind of makes me want to push through and do more because whenever I encounter a young person, one of my students or whatever, you know, I I have, they ask me, give you another anecdote, very quick one. One of my students came in, this is a couple of years ago. She was half Jamaican and half Bayesian and she was in her third year. She'd not done great. And she was, she came into my room and she sat down and she said, I want to write about clothing from the Caribbean, but all, all, all that Caribbean people ever, ever had was just slave clothing. She said, mm. she said, mm. they don't have, she said, there's nothing else. There's only, there's only slave clothing. And I was mm-hmm. like, hold your horses, <laughs> pump your brakes. <laughs> let's just break this. Mm. Let's just unpack this right here and so it's it's conversations like that by the time I'd finished with her she was like oh my god I feel so proud of being Jamaican because we've got this and this and this and this you know and I was I had but I had to literally open the top of my head take out my brain and throw it at her (laughs) because I was like 
no, I'm not having you walk into my room being a young Caribbean person or a young person of Caribbean heritage. I'm feeling mm. like, you know, all you all you have to your history is slave knowledge. Mm. Like not mm. not that mm. that not that there's anything wrong with that because actually no. our ancestors, our enslaved ancestors survived. They yeah, are the ones yeah. They are the ones who we have to applaud every single day mm. we live because they made sure we are still here. Mm-hmm. But Completely. the way she was, the way she was expressing about it was like it was so base beneath her, like mm. just so. Mm-hmm. And and it was because, and I know after speaking to her for a while, she said it was because she hung around with a lot of her friends who, you know, knew great. Lent centuries of their history and mm-hmm. they could trace their ancestors back mm-hmm. to wherever, wherever, mm-hmm. wherever, you know, and, and they'd clearly sort of said to her, well, you know, you lot were slaves, so you lot don't know nothing. Mm-hmm. And so she kind mm-hmm. of internalized that, you know, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and came into my office and was like, I want to write about this thing, but I don't want to just be saying like, oh, well, slaves would just wore rags. And I was like, no, 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 yeah. girl, this is not how this is going to go. <laughs> I'm looking at how Jamaicans constructed their, their identities through fashion, like 1950s onwards and then post-independence. Because I'm arguing that there's a creolized aesthetic that the Jamaicans use, which can be defined if we look in the right places to try and define it. And one of the things that I did more recently, because ages ago I read it, but then I, you know how those things slip your mind? And then I remembered something. So I started looking through slave adverts. Mm-hmm. And although they say... It's the usual, most of it says Osnaberg and different elements like that. But there's also little bits about, oh, this person's got a jacket that's got stripes added to it and, and certain buttons that are not usually on these jackets. And it's like, well, that's already telling you that they're trying to do something different. You might not agree right, with what then. they're doing, but they were doing something different. And yeah. so for me, it's about we need to find these things. I mean, a lot of these stories are going to be lost and I just have to accept a lot of these stories that are going to, are going to be lost. But then when we look in the colonial travel journals and those diaries, we can find descriptions, whether negative, extremely negative, but in there we also find that actually it's clear that they were doing something different. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it just starts to make you argue because another thing that I'm arguing about is that when you think about fast fashion, it's always in the context of the West, isn't it? In European countries or European American countries and these so-called non-white countries don't do fashion. But then for me, it's about defining fashion on whose terms, because for fashion exactly. for you is a certain thing. Fashion for them is something completely different. It's just that exactly. you've just never seen it as Let's look at fashion in location specific spaces instead of just assuming that what we do fits the rest of the world. Exactly. And I, and for that reason, specifically, I really don't like the word fashion because it has had ah. such a very narrow definition Right. Okay. It has a, the, the definition of it has for, for such a long time. I mean, it's definitely getting better, but the definition of it has been so very narrow, attributing mm-hmm. to, you know, a, a, a handful of countries in Europe, not even all of yeah. Europe, just a handful yeah. of countries in Europe and America. 
right? And so mm-hmm. just that very narrow definition of the seasonal, cyclical okay. development of clothing and trend is what is attributed to fashion. So whatever anyone else is doing in any other part of the world is not considered to be fashion, is 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 relegated to some mm-hmm. kind of traditional or ethnic garb okay. or something that is, you know, well, suggested as being beneath. See, and I just, this, you know, I this, can't... See, this is where debate is going to start, Talika. This is where debate is going to start because <laughs> I use the word fashion and I constantly use the word fashion because I know that Jamaican dress has been relegated to dress for all yes. those reasons. So I continuously use the word fashion because I want it known that Jamaicans were fashionable. They saw themselves as fashionable. They were fashion, being fashion and making fashion. So I argue that, I, that I'm using that word. So it's funny. No, it's but, funny but, too no it's good, but it's good. But it's, no, but it's good that you're using that word because what you're doing is you're actually extending the definition and the understanding mm-hmm. from the very narrow understanding exactly. that we've had for so long. So actually, it's really important that you do use that word. My my dislike of the word has been because of that narrow yeah. definition. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you completely. See, now we're going to go off on a tangent, but I'm trying not to. I'm trying not to. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, you started know, this conversation. I know, I know. <laughs> Another question that I have for you is because of the absences and silence that we found in literature and archival material, has that changed the way you've designed your research? Have you changed it to fit what's there or are you doing what you're doing anyway and continuing just to lay the groundwork as you have? Well, I mean, it's kind of a little bit of a patchwork of all of those things, to be honest. I Mm -hmm. definitely haven't changed. I haven't changed anything to fit existing models no okay. I, I I refuse to do that mm-hmm. because I think that just adheres to a very standardized really colonialist way of looking at things and I just think that's not the right way to go okay. and I'm, I'm determined that we have to try and change things look at things differently ask more pressing more interrogative questions you know yeah. um yeah. and so my the way that because of those silences and because of a particularly standardized way of looking at things, I've tried to go via, I don't want to use the word informal, but let me say a, a, an atypical way of mm-hmm. um, a non-conventional approach, yeah, yeah. which is probably, you know, from an outside point of view, probably does seem quite informal, you know, doing interviews are much more free-formed and conversational as opposed Mm -hmm. to setting set questions and, you know, having participants answer set questions or things like that. It usually means, in terms of literature, it usually means reading some random random just to get two (laughs) lines (laughs) from something about something, right? And it it will be something like a seed journal. I'm reading a seed journal because... I've in the seed journal, it will tell me that when people who work in the fields are harvesting seeds, they put a particular type of outcrop into the pocket of the trousers that they have and into a secondary pocket. So that then tells me, okay, they're wearing trousers, they've got two sets of pockets. That mm-hmm. means they have two sets of pockets of both legs, there's yeah. four pockets on the back, you know, all little random things like that. So it's, yeah, yeah. it literally is 
having to read some obscure journals sometimes, some obscure mm. writings, mm. just to try and pick up information. Having to read something about somebody else to try and then understand that, okay, along the way they passed by people of African heritage or they passed by some black people and yeah, had yeah, some encounters yeah. with some black people and that influence from them then had this impact on these mm. black people and black people's mm. impact had mm. this, but you know, and, and so it's, it's been, it's been more work than I think I would have to do if I was just writing about corsets and yeah. crinolines. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But because um, stuff's already there. Oh, that's, oh yeah, that's right. Done. I mean, there's mm. there's, there's five hundred thousand things written on corsets and crinolines, mm-hmm. so we can write about corsets and crinolines all day and night. Yeah. But writing about you know Osnaburg and then writing about fabric from Lancaster and Negro cloth and all of this thing and mm. how this got mm. sent to the Caribbean mm. and how this happened there, you know, all of the you really have to knit together this information, yeah. and Definitely. and knitting together the information has been really laborious but it is necessary i really do believe mm. it's necessary mm. because you know if we don't do it then it just means that somebody else has to do it and at least yeah. at least we are doing what i feel we're doing worthwhile work definitely you know? we're laying the groundwork for future researchers that want to look at yeah. these things particularly if so. you think about the younger generation of scholars that are going to come up and they're going to start looking at British, black British history and how black British identities are created. And if they're thinking about fashion in particular, they're going to have to look to the Caribbean because that's where it came from. So at least we're giving them a foundation on which to build and they're not having to do the same labour that we've had to do, searching in all these places. I mean, one thing that you talked about is oral interviews, you see, and I use oral interviews. And one of my reasons for oral interviews is that I don't want to speak for Jamaicans. I want Jamaicans to speak for themselves. So Mm -hmm. like you, it's not necessary. I have a set list of questions that I use, but I don't suddenly say to somebody, wait a minute, you didn't answer this question. Let's go back and let's answer this question. I let them flow because I just think it's important because most of the time these people have never told their stories to anybody else. So it's important for them to say what they want to say. And I think we can get a lot from that and it doesn't necessarily have to be set questions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the demographic of my research is older black women and older black women have absolutely been erased. You want to talk about silences, Mm. absolutely been erased from the fashion landscape. You know, you'd yeah, you'd think that yeah. older black women didn't wear clothes and were not exactly. interested in clothes exactly. at all, you know. Mm. And so speaking to some of these older black women about their fashion engagement, their taking up and and embracing of different types of clothing and different types of styles and how they felt when they were younger, when they came into the country or when they started traveling or whatever, has been so it's been difficult, but it's also been it's been difficult because they can't talk about their engagement with clothing without also talking about their trauma. Yes. Right. Yes. Because, because one, one is very much wrapped around the other. Mm-hmm. And so it, it kind of comes as a package. And so it's, it means kind of sifting through a lot of trauma and dealing with a lot of trauma before we can kind of get to these tiny, and it's only sometimes little tiny kernels of information yeah. about yeah. clothing and dress, but it lets me understand that, how they felt, how they embraced their clothing, how they wanted to feel about their clothing. 
And it also really highlights the fact that no one has ever spoken to these women. Yeah, exactly. No one has ever exactly. spoken. No one. Exactly. These stories have not been told. They, mm-hmm. the, these things that they've they've experienced have never been spoken about before. And so, you know, it's really my job really has been. Okay, tell me about that. How did you feel mm. about that? And and mm. trying to trying to really pull this information out of them and them sort of really so one of them said to me the other day no no one's asked me these questions before I don't know I don't know I don't know you know Mm -hmm. and I said but you do know but because no one's asked you you felt like it's not important but actually Mm -hmm. you are important and for them to hear that it's you know it's it feels like a lot of them haven't heard in fact I know a lot of them haven't heard Mm -hmm. that they're important before Mm -hmm. You know, I so that's it, another reason why this work is necessary. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, I found it really difficult finding people willing to talk on the record about their experiences. Right. You would, they'd have conversations about it, but they just really didn't understand the value and importance of anything that they were saying. And one person sure. I interviewed was a dressmaker. And I was laughing to myself because she was uncertain to start off with because she really didn't understand why I wanted to talk about Jamaican dressmaking and her practice as a dressmaker. But then as she started going on, she started feeling more relaxed and just talking about it more generally. But it was so interesting when she got to define, describe what what her practice was. And I was like, so can you describe what you do as a freehand dressmaker? And could she define it? And she was like, no, she couldn't. I just can't. I can't. I just look at something and that's what I want. And that was the end of what she could, as far as she could go. And I just think because we're not interviewing these people, we're just missing so much information and yeah. so much important detail about not only their lives, but how they created and, and their practice more generally. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I said this when my grandmother died, she was a freehand dressmaker and it was only until I understood what it took to make clothing that I understood how amazing it was to be freehand dressmaker, Mm -hmm. you know, and trying to talk to her about, but now you don't need a pattern. You just like see something in a catalog and then you've got it like the next couple of hours. Like, how have you done that? How did you do that? And she was always like, but it's like she couldn't, again, she couldn't mm, define mm. it. She couldn't talk about it. It was just mm. like, well, you just do so and do so and then it's the so. <laughs> you know, and she, it's, never the, she it's never the same. It's never the same as in the catalog. Never the same. It's always changes. They just use There's always the a little extra. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Whether they change the front or change the back or add something yeah. to it, there's always something extra. What do you think needs to be done to safeguard these histories now and in the future? One of the things that really needs to happen is archiving. There's got to be archiving of this information. You know, yeah. you're doing the work. I'm doing the work. Um, Lucille Jean Carré is doing the work in Wales and in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. We've got Rose. We've got Carol. You know, there there are handfuls of us, not just in this country, but in other countries as well. Mm-hmm. And we've got to start archiving and consolidating the information. Yeah, yeah definitely. Right? And, and I think that once we've started doing that, and it doesn't matter if we have that archived and consolidated in lots of different places at the same time, we, we need to develop that bank yeah. of information so then it becomes accessible to yeah. other people. You know, not just other yeah. people from the African diaspora, but, you know, people outside the African diaspora, yeah, non-black yeah. people. Everybody needs to know the information that we're researching here and yeah, needs to understand yeah. why it's important. 
I think archiving is definitely one of the most important things that we need to do. And a big goal, a big goal could be setting up a centre for design history in the Caribbean. Oh, yeah. And so yeah, oh, yeah. When, when we collect these things, we can, because I really do believe that although we're collecting it and it's a good thing that people like you, Rose and I are saving these things, it's also only, it's part of our history, but it's also part of their history. And a lot of yeah. these students who would come out of those places won't necessarily be able to come to Britain and look at this, yes. this stuff. Absolutely. So absolutely. we've got to Which is why a way we, that they can things. access it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100%, 100%. You know, I just, ah, uh, it, it's, sometimes I just have to pause and breathe because <laughs> sometimes it feels insurmountable. You yes. know, the amount of work feels insurmountable sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But I know that, I've I've not to, I've not got to think of it as we've got to get to this end goal. It's just one of those things where you have to just keep chipping away, chipping away, chipping mm-hmm. away, chipping away, chipping away. Mm-hmm. You know, and as people come up behind us, they will they will hopefully continue the chip, 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 yeah, and yeah. we will get there. You know, we will, you know, my grandchildren, whoever, we will get there, and it will we will have this bank of information. But we've got to still keep doing the writing, still keep doing the yeah, archiving, definitely. still keep. You know, we've got to put our stuff out there. You know, yes, that seems to become a theme that yeah. we do need an archive and we do need to document this in some way. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Centre for Caribbean Design History on one of the Caribbean islands. The government should fund this. The British government should fund it. Out Listen to me. That needs to be in the reparations <laughs> package, fam. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Next week, I will be speaking to Kadian Gosler about her experiences as an African diaspora researcher. Kadian is a PhD candidate within the Fashion, Textile and Design Department at the University of the Arts London.